With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. My name is Chris Reifer, and joining me as always, the Timbers and Thorns beat writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, and shall I add, nationwide traveler this last week, <laughs> Jamie B. Goldberg. Uh, Jamie B., how, how you doing? How you hanging in there after kind of a busy weekend? Yeah, um, I'm pretty exhausted, uh, to be honest. I, I didn't get a ton of sleep in the last few days and um, flew to Orlando on Friday, didn't get in till night. Uh, it's obviously pretty tough to get there from Portland to Orlando. I don't envy the players that have to do it and actually play soccer afterwards. Um, they did get a few extra days, but it's still a tough flight. Uh, covered the NWSL Championship Saturday, which was obviously incredible. And we're going to talk a bunch about it. Uh, and it came back Sunday for the celebration. I uh, got back in time, really just in time. Uh, I got back around two. So got back, threw my stuff at home, went to the Timbers game, saw them clinch playoffs, went to the celebration uh, for the Thorns. So it was a quite an eventful weekend. I, I, this is kind of what I, what I love about my job. Uh, but I am definitely, after this podcast, going to be going to bed pretty early tonight. Quite an eventful weekend indeed. Uh, spoiler alert, in case you haven't heard and don't want to wait until the end of the episode, or if you do, like, you know, earmuffs, uh, the Thorns won. That's very exciting. Uh, so they are champions. Uh, the third major trophy, or, or I should say the third sort of season ending or playoff trophy coming to the Rose City in the last five years. Uh, the fourth major trophy uh, when you throw in the Thorn Shield from last year as well uh, in the last five years. Uh, split between two clubs, albeit three for the Thorns, one for the Timbers. Uh, that's pretty darn good. Uh, that's uh, that's not a bad run of form here in the Rose City on the whole. There have certainly been some disappointments along the way uh, between 2013 and now. Uh, but that is still very, very impressive. Uh, an outstanding track record. Uh, between the, the the two clubs. And so, yeah, we will talk a lot more about the Thorns in just a bit. We are going to start off, though, with the Timbers and their 4-0 victory over D.C. United on the weekend. Uh, our predictions, uh, I called a 3-0 win with the Darren Maddox goal. You called a 2-0 win with the Sebastian Blanco goal and assist. I, I suppose I was a teeny bit closer on the score. Uh, Darren Maddox did not score a goal. He did draw kind of an important penalty that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, you're, you were not quite as close on the score, did get the result, but I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you were halfway there on the Sebastian Blanco goal and assist. You got the goal. Uh, he added one more for good measure. 
Uh, go ahead and give the points, Jamie Goldberg. What do you say uh, as between the two of us uh, on these points? Um, I'm going to give myself 29 points and I'm going to give you 25 points. I think I get the extra credit for getting the side bet uh, closer to right than you. I got, you know, the actual result of the of the real soccer game closer to right than you. Yeah, but you didn't get it right. And uh, we both predicted a shutout. We both predicted that it's going to be by a few goals. I, I think the Blanco, given that, yes, he had scored in the last game, but he hadn't scored in eight games before that. So you asked me to give the points. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I, I mildly object, but, you know, uh, as people know, we keep track of these points very, very carefully. Uh, <laughs> they are not at all made up right on the spot. I, I can assure you of that. Uh, you know, it was an interesting game. I think the way you put it uh, on Oregon Live is, is it was sort of a game of two halves. Uh, and I think that that is pretty much on the nose. Very tight first 45 minutes. Uh, DC United really packed in, uh, made things difficult for the Timbers. And frankly, the Timbers didn't look sharp in dealing with it. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think we were all sort of looking around as we entered first half stoppage time saying, boy, you know, somebody has got to give him a shot in the arm in the, in the locker room, because this is a game that could easily get away from them, uh, and, and could end up not being, you know, the, the full three points that they needed. Well, you know, uh, they did get that penalty right before halftime. Uh, Darren Maddox drew it, uh, for which I got no credit. Uh, Diego Valeri scored it. Uh, and, and then the, the second 45 minutes was a completely different story. Total domination from the Timbers. Uh, they, they, they piled on three more. It was basically wrapped up by the 60th minute, uh, and, and, and the rest was academic from there. What did you think changed in the game? What was it that turned this from being a really tight sort of nip-tuck uh, game in which there were, there were legitimate concerns about whether the Timbers were going to get the three points they needed to literally like 15 minutes of a game time later, just a total laugher, LOL, DC United get out of here uh, kind of game. What, what was it uh, that turned it on its head? Yeah, I, I think the biggest moment you point to has to be the penalty kick. I, I think going into halftime one nothing versus going into halftime 0-0 made a huge difference for the Timbers. I, I think give them, gave them that extra confidence that this they were in a good position and, and they knew this was a team that they should and needed to beat to ensure that they were going to clinch a playoff spot. Uh, but I think it took maybe some of those nerves away being able to get that first goal. I, I do also think that first goal forced DC to play a little bit differently in, in the second half. It just forced the defense to play a little bit higher for them to go a, a little bit more towards trying to find the equalizer and not just sitting back and playing for a draw. So I, I think that helped the Timbers maybe a little bit open them up. I think one thing Caleb Porter pointed to also was just that he felt the fullbacks got more into the game as it went along. But I think when you look at the match, had that penalty kick not happened when it did, I don't know if they would have come out in the same way in the second half. Yeah. I mean, especially given the way the first half had gone to that point, it's almost hard to believe that it would have, right? Uh, there was no reason to think the Timbers were, were, were going to pour on four goals uh, between first half stoppage time and, and into the second half by that point. The Timbers, frankly, had hardly any clearer chances. There was one that Darren Maddox missed uh, and then another that, uh, that actually, no, that's the same chance that Maddox missed and, and, and Powell created. Uh, and you know, I, I, other than that, there just wasn't a ton for the Timbers in that first half. And so, yeah, it, it was, it was kind of an uncomfortable feeling, uh, as we thought we were going in, in, into halftime. Uh, but then I, I thought the, you may have even undersold it a little bit and how much that Maddox 
penalty cha- penalty drawn changed the game. Uh, once Valeri put put that in there, uh, DC United couldn't do what they'd done, which was basically tuck eight eight players in behind the ball. Uh, and make sure the Timbers just had no space, force the Timbers wide, and make them hit sort of hopeful crosses, by and large, uh, into the box. That's how the first half went. Uh, after D.C. United went down a goal, you know, I, to some extent, to their credit, they they came out and played. Uh, to some extent, the, you know, to, to their credit, you'd have to say they came out and, and played in a way where they could have conceivably earned a goal, and they had more chances in the second half than they did in the first half. That's, like saying nothing because in the first half they had one shot from distance to show from, you know, 45 minutes of kicking a ball around. Uh, but, but, you know, they, they definitely came out and, and were looking for that goal. As it happened, they didn't find it. And the Timbers as a result found many, many more, but those spaces were just so much bigger. The Timbers were so much, had, had a much, much better time uh, of using combination play, uh, of being able to find space to get guys moving on the dribble. Uh, and and being ultimately able to f- find space to unleash some pretty spectacular goals uh, that, that ended the game, and so I I thought that was all the difference, and I, I thought uh, DC United's approach changing made all the difference in the game. And look, th- this is just a reality of MLS soccer with with teams being even bad teams being competent by and large. If a team comes in and and essentially like DC United in that first half says, you know what, we're just going to tuck in behind the ball and make things difficult on you. They can make things difficult on just about every team in MLS. Uh, most of the time, that's going to make for a challenging game. And you have to do what the Timbers did. You've got to go out and find a way to get that first goal. They, they missed a couple opportunities at it uh, you know, throughout the course of the first half, but including Maddox. But all credit to them for earning that penalty because you've just got to find a play like that. And if you can do it, then the floodgates can open and you can sort of uh, flex your muscles and show the dominance. And so uh, credit to, to Maddox for sort of unlocking the game and then credit to the Timbers of not just walking through the door, but like after the door was open, you know, uh, packing it with like explosives and, and then blowing it off the hinges because uh, I, after that, the, the game was was well, well over. Uh, I think one of the big talking points, at least from uh, a, uh, a a sort of individual perspective coming out of the game, was a little bit of a renaissance from Elvis Powell. He was a surprise start, uh, I, I think, for most of us, although he did come in and have a good shift against San Jose, so maybe we shouldn't have been as surprised as we were. Uh, and and not only did he uh, have, frankly, a credible chance at a hat trick, but he scored a pretty spectacular goal and was a, a menace uh, in, in the attack for uh, the Timbers and was really solid defensively. So the way I want to ask this to you, Jamie Goldberg, is, is this. Hey, Charlie Brown, you want to kick the football? <laughs> um, you know, yeah, Charlie Brown wants to kick the football, right? And you, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, you do in Charlie Brown's case. But, yes, you, you do. Um, you do know what's going to happen. We don't in Charlie know. Brown's we case. don't know what's going to happen. We, uh, at least in our brains right now, don't know what's going to happen. Pal is a frustrating player because he has a game like this and you see the upside. You see why the Timbers have invested so much money in him and so much time in him, um, more, more so the time. And, and then you see him play like he has for much of the season eh, where he has costly mistakes and, and just doesn't seem to be in the right headspace in, in the right moments. And, and so... I think that maybe this could lead to a good run of form. I think when you look back and I believe it was 2014 when the Timbers 
tried to give Powell a few starts. It wasn't working out. Things weren't going very well. So they sent him down to Sacramento on a loan and he hated it there. And he came back with a new mindset, a new mentality, a, a determination that he was going to perform here. So he wasn't going to get sent back down on another loan or sent back to Jamaica. And he came out and he earned that starting spot and, and he continued to hold on to that starting spot for quite some time. And, and I think maybe these last few months where he hasn't been playing, maybe that's a wake up call to him to some degree. Maybe he has a new mindset and he's going to be able to get into a good run of form. But the frustrating thing is that this keeps happening, that it's not suddenly things click and he's the player, the consistent player they need him to be. And he's showing the upside they, they want him to show. It's that he seems to inevitably revert to the player that isn't, it makes mistakes mental mistakes over and over again in games so i don't know there there's a chance and i i don't think it's unreasonable to think that pal could be an important player for the timbers for the rest of the year and, and having more of an attack-minded fullback a, an athletic guy like him playing over Eric valentine could be an asset to portland but in terms of his long-term future here i still have a lot of questions because as you phrased the question i, I just don't know if this is i i almost doubt uh that this is suddenly a transformation yeah i'm not kicking that football um not a chance uh, you know it's look it, that game that alvis just played this last weekend uh is a game that zarek valentin can't play right uh zarek can't put put in a performance like that he's definitely done some good things uh for the timbers he's had some good performances he's he's been a pretty consistent force at, at, at right back uh, and, and so, you know, credit to him for that. He doesn't have it in him to do what, what Powell did, which was like for periods of the time, sort of like take over the game from right back, uh, which is sort of a shocking thing to do. I, I, that's not something you say, uh, very often. And certainly, uh, in, so in soccer and certainly not in, in MLS where fullbacks are sort of the, uh, the ugly stepchildren, uh, uh, uh of most teams starting lineups. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, that is a performance. That is the the, the kind of stuff that, that Zarek Valentin can't do. And frankly, I would go so far as to say that's the kind of stuff that there are probably only a, a relative handful of fullbacks around the league that can do something like what Powell did. You know, I mean, Jovan Jones can have games like that where he is dynamic going forward. He's he's dangerous. Uh, he's goal dangerous. He's assist dangerous. Uh, he He's quality in defense. Um, you know, he can he can have, have games like that. Justin Morrow. Uh, in Toronto can have games like that and, and does so uh, with much more consistency. And, and that's why he's regarded by many to be, if not the best, then one of the best fullbacks in MLS. Uh, I'm sure if you scoured the league, uh, you could find a couple more that, that can do things like what Powell did on Sunday. Uh, but honestly, not that many. You're probably talking about five or six total uh, that, that can put in a performance like Alvis did on Sunday, uh, which is, is almost makes it more frustrating. Uh, because no, I'm not gonna go go ahead and kick the football and say, yeah, he's uh, he's about about ready to to take this uh, spot back uh, for the rest of the playoffs for the rest of the year, uh, and he's gonna become the the starter at right back uh, and, and is gonna be here beyond this season. Because heck, uh, you know, I mean, I've been saying, oh, good grief, way too many times uh, on on that particular in this particular scenario, uh, and it's gonna take a heck of a lot more than one, frankly, pretty spectacular. Uh, performance from right back to, to get me to do it. So uh, no thanks, Lucy. Uh, not interested. And you are going to have to go find yourself another sucker. Um, Diego Valeri. He has 21 goals and 11 assists on the season. 
NBD, that is, you know, only the second time in MLS history that somebody has done that. Yeah, I, we, we asked uh, Will Conwell, our good friend, asked Caleb Porter about it after the game, and he was like, I ain't got nothing to say. There's nothing to say about him. He's the MVP, whatevs. Uh, that's kind of that. That actually pretty well encapsulates my attitude about Valeri right now. Uh, I, I, it's I like I'm totally at the point where I'm putting my feet up on the desk. I'm sitting back. I'm enjoying the living bejesus out of watching this guy. But I, I just don't have anything more to say about him. I, I, I feel like I've said all the words. Do you have any more words about Diego Valeri, or, or, or can we just sort of like use this as our, our like weekly cap tip, cap tip to his excellence? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it's hard to come up with more to say. I mean, he's just continuing to break records. He's continuing to step up. It has, even though we keep saying, you know, the Timbers can't rely on Valeri to carry the team over and over again, um, he hasn't slowed down at all. I mean, that little blip of a San Jose game, and he's right back at it. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the MVP race goes. I... I'm going to throw this story out there really quickly since I have very little to say about Diego Valeri, just to kind of explain the, the game that the Timbers should get in if they want to get to the, make sure that Valeri wins the MVP race. In 2015, it, the MVP race was between Kai Kamara and, and uh, Sebastian Giovinco. And, and so I, uh, as an MLS reporter, received a packet from the Columbus crew outlining why, uh, why I should vote for um, Kai Kamara uh, for the MVP. Uh, the Toronto FC delivered pizzas to every reporter in the country with the number 10 on them written in pepperoni and that just appeared at the Oregonian's door and they were calling me wondering what it was. So the race can get pretty crazy. I, I definitely think that uh, pepperoni pizza is still some, just the, the whole, how hilarious that is, is still in my memory. <laughs> Um, so who'd, who'd Timbers, you vote for? Who'd you vote for? I mean, Giovinco deserved was it, it, was it the 25 goals or was it the pizza? <laughs> it was, <laughs> it, he deserved it. Yes. It, for me, it wasn't really much of a contest, but anyways, I, I, my point is I'd really like to see, uh, the Timbers make sure they up their game on this and, and go all out. Um, Caleb Porter's, you know, this is the first time he's full on said Diego Valeri is MVP, but I think the Timbers have reason to, you know, try to push for him to win it because this season's incredible. And like you said, it's uh, what he's done for this team, uh, where this team would be without him. Just just thinking about that and just all the records he's broke, broken this season. Um, it's just been fun to watch. I got nothing to say other than I wouldn't mind pizza. I like pizza yeah. quite a bit. Um, I would prefer if it wasn't just pepperoni. Uh, you know, I mean, pepperoni's fine. I got no problem with pepperoni. Uh, well, limited pepperoni because it was just a ten in pepperoni. Right. You know, I I, <laughs> I I get it. I get it. And and I got nothing wrong with pepperoni. But you know, if they wanted to sit, like send me like some sausage with some like mama little yeah. peppers and maybe some like I don't know some fresh arugula on there or something like that, I wouldn't be disappointed by that at all. Uh, I can't say that would make me more inclined to vote for Diego Valeri because a I can't vote uh, and b <laughs> I would vote for him if I could anyway. Uh, but I like pizza, so don't send me a packet. Send me pizza. Uh, Sebastian Blanco, he had a brace in this game, uh, as you took a great deal of credit for earlier. Uh, and and I think this is a, an opportunity not to sit back and, and, and aggrandize Jamie Goldberg, but rather to sit back and sort of assess uh, Sebastian Blanco's uh, sort of performance now over the course of the season. We've got 
you know, 33 games of the season, not quite 33 games for Blanco, under our belt, uh, do you think we can call this signing now a, a, a success? Is he sort of worth the, you know, four million bucks or so and the uh, and, and the DP spot that the Timbers gave to him o- o- over the course, uh, over the offseason? Uh, and, and can you say that this one has been, you know, unlike some that have come before him, an unequivocal success? Yeah, I, I yes, I think that this has been a success. I, I think that he has done what, what the Timbers, what we predicted at the beginning of the season, that we hoped he would be able to do in terms of his production, eight goals, seven assists. Uh, I, I think that's very good. And it's exactly what the Timbers needed coming off a year where Caleb Porter consistently said, we're not getting enough produ- production from our wingers. I think he has had a little bit of ups and downs. He had a really great streak there in the summer. And, and now it seems like maybe he's heating up again. We, we've talked about whether having different, depending on which fullbacks are, are on the field, how that helps him. And obviously this game, uh, he had a little bit more attack minded guys that could get forward uh, into the attack and, and kind of complimented him in his position. And maybe that's something he needs to produce even more. But I think when you look at the production, it's exactly what we were talking about in the beginning of the year. And, and the fact that he's been able to produce it like that and the, how that's changed the Timbers game to be able to have production from a winger like that, it has been really important this season. So for me, yes, unequivocal success. I completely agree. In fact, it, I, I haven't done this and I won't because I'm kind of lazy. Uh, but I think if you went back to some of the to those episodes and we were talking about sort of reasonable expectations and aspirations for for Blanco, uh, I actually wouldn't be surprised if at one point we were like, hmm, eight goals, seven assists sounds great. Uh, because that's I mean, that's right in the neighborhood uh, of where we were talking. You know, with a winger, you're not going to get uh, outside of a Nacho Piatti, who is as a winger, the primary playmaker on his team. You're ordinarily not going to get. Uh, the kind of production that you would get from from your number 10 or a second forward or a striker. Uh, but that's okay because they're wingers and, and, and they have more responsibilities uh, than those guys do. Blanco uh, is committed to those extra responsibilities very, very well. And he's also been, he's been, you know, in when you consider uh, Fernando Adi, Diego Valeri, he has been that third very dangerous, uh, you know, sort of goal scoring uh, assisting threat that the Timbers have needed. Uh, Darling, he is basically the guy that everybody wanted Darlington Nagby to be. We know Nagby's not that guy. I think we we've basically come to embrace who Nagby is and be comfortable with that. But but it did leave a little bit of a vacuum, it, 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 especially in the absence of Rodney Wallace uh, doing that as he did in 2014, uh, or a Maxi Rudy doing that as he did in, in 2014. The Timbers needed to find that, and they did. They found it. It, it cost them money, but that's what good players co- cost you. You, you got to pay for them. Uh, and they paid for a good player in Sebastian Blanco, and they got a good player in, in Sebastian Blanco. So, uh, you know, I mean, by all means, I think this is an unequivocal, unmitigated su- success, unqualified success uh, in bringing him in. I think he's provided exactly what the Timbers needed from him. Look, you know, there have definitely been times this season where, and, and especially through sort of a tough period in the middle of the summer when the rest of the team wasn't playing great, Adi was struggling, Valeri was struggling a bit. Uh, they had guys in and out on international duty uh, and, and the like, in which Sebastian Blanco stepped up and carried the team for a month or so. That's huge. And then even when he ha- he hasn't been doing that, he's still been contributing in you know doing things like scoring a, a goal to, to get the Timbers back in the game in San Jose, uh, scoring two goals to put the game away uh, against DC United, and, and being a consistent uh, threat. Even when yes, you're right, he has gone as every player goes through 
especially players that are new to MLS, uh, a few ups and downs. So uh, I think it's a very, very good first season for for Blanco. I think especially with his increased comfort with the league next year, there is reason to think next year could be an even better season for Blanco. Uh, and and so I think there is, there is every reason at this point uh, to call his signing a success. You know, the other thing that I think we've got to start talking about as a success, though, is the Timbers' defense. Uh, we sort of alluded to this a, a few weeks ago, but this has just kept going. Uh, yes, they've conceded some goals on the road, but, you know, I mean, conceded goals happen. Over the course of the last 12 games, though, basically going back into the summer, the Timbers have only given up about one, have only given up 1.25 goals per game. That's excellent. They have four shutouts in the, their last eight. That is also excellent. Uh, and, and so what I want to, you know, ask you about, and, and even now when you look at it sort of a, as a season long measure, the Timbers defense is basically about average. I don't think that's something that we would have anticipated saying in the second to last week, uh, you know, before the last week of the season, uh, you know, back in June when the Timbers were bleeding goals all over the place. So is it time to start talking differently about this defense? Do the Timbers not only not only have an average defense, but maybe now have a defense that you can legitimately say is just good uh, and, and could be not only sort of not a liability, but actually an asset going into the playoffs? I think they've certainly shown that in, as you've said, in, in recent weeks. I think it's interesting that they haven't necessarily solidified their outside backs at this point. Caleb Porter has always talked about the importance of having a set back four, but I, I think as we've mentioned, bringing in Mabiala changed, changed the dynamic for this team. It, it was super important for them to get him. And I think since then they've been overall a better defensive team. I, I think that was an immediate change. And I think Miller did well in, in a center back position for a while, but we've seen what Liam Ridgewell can do with this team. And I think him coming back into the lineup again, just helped make that defense even better. And as Mobial and Ridgewell continue to work on that partnership and get more comfortable with each other, I think it has a chance to only get better and better. It would be nice to see Caleb Porter pick an outside back pair and maybe use that going into the, going into playoffs. But I think the center back pairing is pretty effective right now and i think those are two veteran guys that are bringing consistency to the field and they're not making big mistakes in key moments like we were seeing throughout the early part of the season and so we're not talking quite as much about them just because they're doing their jobs and they're, they're doing what they need to do in key moments and maybe we don't notice it that much but yeah as you've said the stats are backing it up and i think that's a very important part I think when you look back at 2015, when the Timbers won MLS Cup, one of their biggest strengths was defense. So if that's something they can take into the postseason and they can consider it an asset, that can make the difference between how long this run in the playoffs is going to be. So here's my question to you, because this is something I was listening for in in Porter's press conference yesterday. And he never sort of, and I, you know, it would have been pointless to ask him this straight out because he wouldn't have answered it. Uh, directly, and he shouldn't answer it directly, but I, I was sort of listening for clues, hints into his thinking about whether he was trying to sort of settle on a game in, game out, back four, sort of solidify the depth chart going into playoffs, or if he really was going to sort of just try to match this up on a game-by-game, opponent-by-opponent basis. What do you think he's thinking in that regard, and, and what do you, you know, and if it's different, what do you think he should do in that regard? 
I mean, he kind of implied that he is thinking on a game by game basis from what I took away from that press conference. But I think that goes against everything he said since 2013 when he arrived here in Portland. I would like to see him settle on a back line. And I think that back line, at least on the left side, should be Vitas. I think it makes sense to go with Powell again and see if that can work. I think assume, assuming, assuming, assuming stay relatively consistent, that would be their best back four option, both from an attacking perspective and a defensive perspective. I think that would be the best option to give them the best chance to give, get, have a real run here in the playoffs. Um, but obviously I, I think the question between Valentin and Powell has to be left open a little bit since he hasn't had, Pal hasn't had a whole lot of time to prove that he's going to be that consistent guy back there. I think Caleb's probably looking to leave it open a little bit, but I, I expect to see both Pal and Vitas in the lineup again this weekend. I totally agree. That's uh, that's a, a, exactly sort of what I took away uh, from his comments uh, in, in the post game press conference, uh, and and it's also uh, what, what you know I I kind of thought he was going to say based on everything he's he's. He said over the course of the last few weeks, but you're exactly right to point out that that's not how he's talked about this issue over the course of basically the rest of his career in, in Portland. He's always been and very consistently preached consistency on the back line. You want to keep that back four together as much as possible. You want to build those relationships. You want to build that comfort uh, with, with each other. That's certainly what served them extremely well in 2015 when they had very few injuries, very few rotations on that back line. Uh, I, I think Nat Borchers played something like 31 games. Liam Ridgewell played something like 32 games that year. Uh, same thing with the outside backs. Jorge Viafania was in there. I think Viafania played every single game, if I remember right, uh, or at least every single MLS game that season. Uh, and Powell wasn't far behind him. Uh, and, and you know, he sort of preached that over the course of, uh, of his tenure in Portland. Uh, and it certainly sounds to me like, like he's thinking about going away from that. And I'm not entirely comfortable with it. Uh, I, I think that you can do more damage by trying to match up on the back line uh, than just by putting the back four that, that works most with the system that you best like to to run on. And yes, there are always, as he said, adjustments you need to make game in and game out. There are always uh, little things that, that you're going to want to do. And maybe that means uh, even in particular positions doing something a little bit different uh, with starting lineups in, in games. But the back four is the back four. And, and I definitely am a fan uh, of if you can finding a, a group of four that you can say, you know, unless there's an injury, unless there's a suspension, this is going to be uh, our starting unit. I think that I agree with you. That's a problem at right back because I'm not kicking the, <laughs> the dang football. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it, it, it gives you a, a lot of nervousness when you, when you look and you say, man, Alvis Powell can put in a performance like that. I would hate to leave that on the bench. I would hate to miss out uh, on that kind of performance. But man, I really want to miss out uh, on the on the on the mistakes that, that he has a tendency to make. So I think that's a hard decision, uh, but I think it's nonetheless one that you know Caleb Porter gets paid a good amount of money to make. Uh, you know, I do want to hit on one other thing from this game against DC United uh, because it, it was a you know even a, even if it wasn't a competitive game, it was a very notable moment late in the game uh, when Steve Birnbaum, uh, after a what at least I thought was a fair challenge from Jeremy Abobasi, uh, went down unconscious. He lost consciousness, went down with a, what was a, a relatively significant head injury. Uh, because of the way uh, the play worked out, with Abobasi winning the ball, uh, dishing off to Sebastian Blanco, who was basically then through on goal, 
uh, Mark Geiger, the referee, uh, let the play play out. Uh, as a result, Blanco went in and scored his second goal, the Timbers' fourth of the game in, in, in the 86th minute. Uh, and and they waited, you know, it was probably only five seconds or so, uh, five, ten seconds or so, uh, waited until the, the, the play concluded to wave the trainer on the field to tend to Burnbaum. There's been a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of criticism of Geiger for not immediately stopping the play. It is sort of in, in, in guidelines that when there is a serious injury on the play, and, and, and certainly most head injuries are, are put into that category, uh, that the referee should stop play immediately and get medical treatment onto the field immediately. But the Timbers were through on goal, and there was no foul on the play. It, 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 the, Geiger didn't call it. It was reviewed uh, up in the booth. You could see Geiger uh, was waiting to, for that review uh, to be complete before he restarted the play. Ultimately, the, the video assistant referee determined that there was not any infraction, there was not any clear and obvious error, uh, and, the, and the goal stood. And so by no fault of the Timbers, they, they would have had essentially a prime goal-scoring opportunity taken away from them, uh, stopped uh, in, in order to tend to, to burn bomb. Obviously, getting medical treatment in, in, in prompt fashion is a huge priority there. So what do you do in, in, in that situation? Did Geiger, do you think, handle it correctly in letting the play, uh, at least that sort of immediate passage of play, those five or ten seconds play out before getting medical attention on the field? Uh, or do you think he should have blown it dead right then and there? Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, sort of dealt with the fallout from the Timbers to to get Birnbaum the attention he needed uh, immediately. What do you think? What's your call? I think it's, a, it's obviously a tough question, but I, I think it's a difficult situation for the referee for – First of all, I think a lot of the people watching the game didn't notice that that had happened. It was so quick. I'm sure the players on the field didn't necessarily notice that it happened. And I don't know how much Geiger was aware of it. He definitely got the trainers on the field immediately after the goal. They, they were on there pretty quick once play stopped. And I think that was important. Um, but I think it's hard to stop a play in that situation. I, I think that's one of the five, 10 second situations that kind of exist in sports it's difficult to stop a play immediately when when it's things are happening that quickly it's it's different than if a player just dribbled away and you're at midfield and there's passes back and forth and then very clearly you can stop the play but how quickly that all that was happening and unfolding i think it's a little bit unfair to expect that geiger would have been able to make that decision and stop that play and that uh it would have resulted in better better medical treatment as well um, so I, I'm not going to fault Geiger for that. I think it's a difficult situation and I don't really see a way that MLS can change the rules without potentially making it a, a little bit difficult for referees, maybe calling on calling dead balls in too many situations or upsetting the other team in competitive games over what, might not be necessary. Um, obviously, that was a situation where it was necessary to get medical treatment, but it's hard to make that judgment so quickly in a split second when, when the play is unfolding like that. And I think they did get the medical staff out there pretty quickly. Here's the other consideration uh, sort of in, in, in support of your perspective. And I don't entirely agree with your perspective, at least as to uh, this game. But the other consideration in support of that is, look, Next time, uh, 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 you know, if if referees and it's made clear are instructed, you need to stop that play immediately. 
don't care what the other team is doing, don't care if they committed a foul or not, uh, even if it's it's no foul at all, and they are through on goal, about to put uh, the ball in the net, you can't stop the play. You know what's going to happen? Fake ten injuries. Yeah, yeah. I, and and it, look, I mean, <laughs> we we've seen that a certain number of soccer players are shameless, right? Uh, we've seen that 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 soccer players, uh, that certain soccer players are more than happy uh, to to embellish that kind of thing. And yeah, uh, and the next guy that gets skinned, uh, that gets sort of beast moded like a like like Birnbaum did by uh, by Abobasi. Great play by Abobasi, by the way. Absolutely nothing wrong with what he did. Uh, just a great play uh, by him. Really unfortunate uh, fall for Birnbaum, um, and 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 the way that played out. But yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have guys that are gonna go down and that are gonna lay motionless in hopes that that's gonna be the way they defend that play. They got beat, so I'm just gonna gonna lay down, be motionless, act like I've got a head injury, uh, and and hope that the the referee stops the play before the other team can put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, that's a serious consideration uh, in, in that instance. The serious consideration on the other end is making sure you're getting. Uh, medical treatment to somebody in, in short order. And I agree with you. If it's if it really is sort of just continuation of a matter of a very few seconds, you know, maybe that's a, a, a good argument that, hey, there really isn't that much, you know, difference between whether the, the trainer is going to get there uh, five or ten seconds later than, than, than he otherwise would have. But you also don't want to mess around with head injuries. Uh, and, and, it, and it is certainly an area in which it makes an awful lot of sense to sort of let caution be the better part of valor. And the the one reason why I think in that instance, if I were Mark Geiger, I may have done something differently is look, it's three zero in the 86th minute. Uh, you know, I, I mean, yes, the, you know, it would have taken a goal away from Sebastian Blanco. It would have taken an assist away from Jeremy Abobasi. Uh, But I mean, my goodness, it's three zero in the 86th minute, the game's over. You're probably not going to be uh, not going to be doing any, any injury time anyway. Uh, and if you are, it's probably going to be sort of the nominal two minutes. Uh, DC United is thoroughly beaten. Uh, this was done. The, 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 this was over. Uh, and so if, if Geiger had blown it dead right then and there uh, and, and said, no, we need to tend to this, uh, it's more important than, than going in for your fourth goal of the game in a, in a 4-0 game, I would have had no problem with it. Uh, and I, would have, I, I don't think anybody would have felt super aggrieved by that. But look, uh, what if the game's 0-0? Zero, zero? Uh, what if the Timbers need three points? Uh, Sebastian Blanco's going in to get them, uh, and Geiger blows it dead. I think the Timbers would have felt very aggrieved uh, by that, and, and, and that's a reasonable perspective. I don't know what the answer is, and I don't think MLS has made very clear what the answer is in this situation, and that's actually the biggest takeaway from me for this situation. I, I think MLS needs to make it explicit and public what the procedure is going to be in this kind of circumstance. Uh, and, and, and sort of what the guidelines are for when referees should let the play continue, let the play play out, uh, and when they should blow it dead. Uh, because if not, that is when fans are reasonably going to feel aggrieved. If there's ambiguity as to what the rule is, if there's ambiguity as to what the referee's instructions are, you're going to have fans that are really ticked off when it goes against their team. Uh, and, and that's the, you know, that's, I, I think what the league needs to avoid. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the big takeaway for me here. I, I think this is something that MLS needs to think hard about, and I think they need to be very express about what they're going to do about it. Okay, Timbers versus Vancouver. This is a game for all the Western Conference marbles. Uh, the winner uh, wins the West in the regular season. This does not carry, as we've talked about before, a CCL berth this year, which would be a little bit unfortunate for uh, the winner, especially if it were, it were the Timbers. 
Vancouver qualifies through Canada, so that's a little bit of a different deal anyway. Uh, but for the Timbers, if they were to win the game in, in an ordinary year, they would uh, qualify for CCL on, on that uh, basis. That doesn't happen this year. So considering all of that, this is fill in the blank. The biggest game at Providence Park since go. I mean, I, I don't think I can put this game over a playoff game. So, and I can't really think of, of another game that that was bigger since 2015. So, I, I guess since the the Dallas 2015 playoff game at home, uh, I, I think it is a big game. I, I think it's going to make a huge difference in the seating and, and what kind of run the Timbers can make in the playoffs. And I don't think they've had a game with this much on the line in quite a while. Um, but in playoffs, everything's on the line. So uh, that's the one I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, from a hyper-technical perspective and assuming <laughs> we're talking about any game, it's the biggest game in Providence Park since last week uh, <laughs> when the Thorns had the semifinal against the Orlando Pride. Um, so, you know, in that way, that was not a good way to frame that question. Uh, biggest Timbers game at Providence Park, uh, since I, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Definitely the, the, that Dallas playoff game. I actually would put it over the Vancouver playoff game in the first leg, uh, of that series. Because if you remember the, the, the Timbers were coming back off of the double post game just three days before that. And there was definitely a sense of like the Timbers just want to get in there and, and basically keep a clean sheet survive this game and try to go win the series in Vancouver. That's exactly what happened. It was a 0-0 draw uh, in Portland, although there was a very good chance that Maxi Rudy just barely did not score late. Uh, and then the Timbers went up to Vancouver and and, and they won it uh, up at BC Place. And that was sort of the way the, the Timbers were planning to tackle the series. So I actually would would put this game above that, uh, but nonetheless still below that, that Dallas game that the Timbers won 3-1 by way of, if you remember the big highlight from that game, a ridiculous, Ridiculous strike from Dyrone Espria, uh, who put the t- put the Timbers up, I think, at the time, 2-0 uh, with a with a strike that I still can only describe as the soccer equivalent of just the nastiest slider you have ever seen uh, thrown by a pitcher. Uh, what, what an amazing strike that was. But yeah, that, that is the precedent that I, that I would go with. Uh, Sean wants to know on, on, on this sort of subject, is Vancouver actually a good team? What do you think, Jamie? Are the Whitecaps any good? Yeah, I think they are. I think there is a reason that they're at the top of the Western Conference. I think Montero has been a huge addition from for them this year. I think overall they've been consistent on defense. I think they've had some recent struggles, and you can see that they're a team that has faults and a team that is beatable. The Timbers have beat them twice this year. I think they have gotten better as the year has gone on, but – this is a team that the Timbers have effectively uh, competed against and been able to get a result. So I think they have faults. I, I wouldn't predict them to win an MLS Cup or anything like that. But I, I think they are a very good team. And I also think this is going to be a tough game for the Timbers this weekend. It's definitely going to be a tough game for the Timbers. You know, the Whitecaps have been a good team on the road over the course of the season. I think they've got six wins on the road, which is a couple more than the Timbers. Uh, so they are a tough out. Uh, on the road, they've struggled a little bit recently uh, in the last few weeks on the road. Two three zero losses, one to Seattle, one to New York. Uh, so if you want reason for hope, that could be it. Uh, and, and they certainly seem to have sort of come off their their really good form that they were in uh, basically from September and before uh, when they ha- had a a pretty good little unbeaten stretch uh, and and sort of catapulted themselves 
up to the top of the Western Conference. They did recently just go uh, to Sporting Kansas City, which is sort of the the counterpoint uh, to their to a couple bad losses on the road. They went to Sporting Kansas City and won in a one zero game. Uh, and you know, I mean, that is that is, that's a huge win. They're, they're the only team uh, to win in Kansas City, not you know other than Kansas City. Uh, they're the only team to go on the road there and, and, and win this year. So we'll see what you're going to get. I mean, is it going to be the team that went to New York and got blitzed? Uh, or is it going to be the team that went to Kansas City and ground out a huge, huge result? Um, but yeah, I mean, are, are, the, are the Whitecaps a good team? They absolutely are. Jordi Reyna has been very good for them uh, in the attack. Uh, and, and there have been times when they've looked every bit the part uh, of a serious contender. There have been also times, frankly, this last weekend included, in which you you scratch your head and you wonder how in the world they are uh, atop the Western Conference, uh, facing off against a San Jose team that is, has been historically incompetent on the road over the course of the last couple of months. Uh, they got into basically a stalemate 1-1 draw, where honestly San Jose uh, was the, the, the team that was probably more dangerous to score the winner uh, than Vancouver. They become, inex- they become inexplicably, the Whitecaps do, predictable at times, even at home. The, we certainly saw that when the Timbers went up there, just highly, highly depleted, uh, and nonetheless went to Vancouver with a bunch of guys out and, and, and basically shut the Whitecaps down. Uh, and, and so the, they, for all the talent that they have and, and for the ability that they have, uh, become inexplicably uh, inert at, at times in the attack. So again, we'll see what you get. Uh, but is this a team that can come to Portland and, and, and get three points uh, and keep the Timbers even out of uh, one of the top two spots in the West? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Will they? Eh, predictions come later in the show. Injury report. Fernando Adi. I, I think he's the big one that we have to talk about. Uh, what do we know about Adi and his availability going forward? Yeah, I, we, we don't entirely know because that's something that Caleb Porter hasn't been specifically wanting to give us timelines on. But we do know that he kind of ran a workout before the game yesterday. It looks like he's getting better. Caleb has said he's getting better. Caleb's also said he will play before the end of the season. I, obviously, I think he expected at that point the team would probably be in playoffs. But I think it's possible uh, given the trajectory and given that he has been getting better and was doing a workout on the field. Uh, before the game that he could feature in this Vancouver game simply because he's a guy that could come off the bench. Um, but it is still a little bit up in there. We're, we're, I don't, I will see, but I, I don't really think we'll get a straight answer this week uh, necessarily saying what, what to expect from Adi this weekend. Yeah. in watching that workout, I, you know, I mean, he was clearly doing, you know, pretty robust stuff, uh, but was it, you know, one week out stuff or two week out stuff. I have no idea. Uh, so, you know, I we'll see what ends up coming, coming out of it, but, uh, whether he's going to be available for Vancouver or not in, in a substitute role, I, I, I just have no idea at this point. And so we'll see what Porter says the, this week in, in his midweek press conference, but this may be just something that, that we get surprised with uh, Sunday at noon when lineups come out. Uh, a few questions. Rory wants to know, Best matchup for the knockout stage. If you had to choose any team to match up with in the knockout stage, who would it be? Uh, and best matchup for a two-legged series. Jamie? Um, since the Timbers are going to host the knockout game, I, I if I were them, I'd be hoping that San Jose would be the team that they get to face. They've not been good on the road. And I think while the Timbers have struggled at San Jose, it's a different story when they're at home. So I think that 
is the best matchup for just a one one off game for the Timbers. I I think um I'm trying to think of I hadn't really thought through who was gonna be the best for the the two leg series. I, I think Sporting Kansas City would would be an interesting one because I, I think they've struggled late in the season. I don't think they are the team that they were early in the year and they seem to be a club that kind of tapers off towards the end. And so I think that given that that's sort of a possibility of a team, the Timbers could end up facing uh, based on where the standings are right now. I think that could potentially be a pretty good matchup for Portland. Those are exactly my two. And for exactly those reasons, Uh runner up for the best matchup in the knockout stage is the Houston dynamo. Uh, another team good at home. So I wouldn't necessarily want them uh, in a two leg series because they are good down in Houston. Uh, but Again, another team that just borders on, at times, incompetent on the road. Uh, Flameslinger wants to know, now that T2 is done for the year, which players will see minutes with the first team next season? Uh, I think after this year, it's a relatively simple answer. None. Uh, I don't think there's anybody on T2 that's going to be in the first team next season. That's not to say that there aren't some good prospects on T2. Uh, I think there are guys that we could see uh, on the first team down the road. Uh, but look, the, the Timbers sort of emptied out the sort of shovel-ready Guys that are ready to make the jump, uh, kinds of kinds of folks last year uh, when they brought you know Marco Farfan, when they brought Victor Arboleda, when they brought Renico Clark up to the first team. Clark has had a disaster of a year, uh, and and I think the question is whether he's going to be with the club at all next season. Uh, Arboleda, I think, had a little bit of a disappointing year as the year went along, uh, and and so I think there are questions there. Wouldn't surprise me if he sticks around. It wouldn't surprise me if he moves on. And Farfan, of course, is, has made it made a little bit of a name for himself. Uh, and, and certainly seems to be in the club's plans going forward uh, as the, the Timbers first sort of, you know, real homegrown Timbers Academy kind of player. So, you know, I mean, they, they kind of emptied out the 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 AAA ready or, or, or what you'd say prospects uh, last year. And as a result, they sort of backfilled with with kind of 18 year old kind of guys uh, with the Lamar Batistas and, and with the, the Harold Hansons uh, of the world. I think they both of those guys have shown some potential over the course of the year. I think both have also shown that they're very, very raw uh, and that they're probably at least a year, another year or two away from being ready to make the jump up to the first team. Not a shock uh, for guys. I mean, look, it, it's not every defender that comes in at 18 uh, like Marco Farfan and is ready to play at the MLS level. There are a lot of guys that need a few years of seasoning before they're going to be ready for the, for the first team. And they certainly seem to be there, even if they do have some promise to them. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if there are there is anybody that on this T2 team right now that screams uh, they're going to be ready. The other guy that that could have been if he'd had a good year uh, is Augustine Williams. I think Augie is, is the one guy uh, that they were probably looking at at the beginning of the year saying if he does well this year, he could be ready to make the jump uh, up to the first team in, in 2018. He has not had a good year, and so I don't think it's likely. Uh, so, you know, it, it's been a frustrating year for T2 as a whole. That's quite a bit of an understatement. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, the best prospects in the T2 system are, are ones that are sort of, uh, a couple of years away. So I don't expect to see anybody from T2, uh, this year up with the first team next year. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think there's certainly some course correction to be done, uh, with T2 as a whole. Wes wants to know how on earth can a team that not once fielded its first choice 11 still be primed to take the West? Jamie, what do you think? Is that really true that they not once? I feel like there you was know, that one game. So, so there was the one game against the against the Galaxy where the Timbers yeah. were 
like for like 60 minutes of the game, uh, like fully healthy. And then that was the game in which Fernando Adi got hurt. Uh, so they didn't finish the game fully healthy. The only other one is I, I think the first game of the season, they did have their first choice 11. Uh, and that was really nice for that. Yeah, moment. It depends. Yeah. It depends if you want it. They lost Arakoyo just like day, like a week before. Sure. That, yeah. That, that so. is, that's actually totally fair. So they really didn't have their first choice 11 that galaxy, that galaxy game. They did, uh, have sort of everybody in the depth chart who, who was number one, uh, started that game, uh, for that one, but did not finish it. So I, I'll go ahead and give Wes accuracy on that because the Timbers were forced into a premature, uh, long-term injury <laughs> absence uh, early in that game. So, yeah, uh, I'll give Wes the accuracy. What do you think uh, of the premise? What do you think about the answer to the question? I, I think the answer is that the Timbers do have good depth. I think at this point in the season, we can say what Caleb was saying early in the year, that they've built a lot more depth this year and have players that are going to get the job done. Players like Roy Miller and Lawrence Holm, despite the defensive issues this year, players like those two players – the Timbers would not be where they are without them because of the roles they had to fill in during the year. And Roy Miller, especially, as we've said, even though we, I think, have agreed that at this point he should be on the bench, probably is the Timbers' defensive MVP because without a depth piece like that, they wouldn't be where they are. So I, I think that was a priority for the Timbers in the offseason. I, I think we were a bit skeptical about how it had worked out. But... Ultimately, when you look back at the season and the players that had to play significant minutes that were only expected to come in as number two or three in the depth chart and not see serious minutes throughout the year, they've stepped up and they've gotten the job done well enough to keep the Timbers right in the race to get to this point where they're a little bit more healthy, a little bit closer to full strength and can start to fight to get to the top of the standings. Yeah, this is something we haven't talked enough about over the course of the year, to be honest. Uh, and, and that's because for a long time, it was sort of a struggle. Uh, when the Timbers were having to play a lot of that depth, they were really having to sort of scratch and claw for points. But they were still able to scratch and claw for points, by and large. Uh, and they were able to, to keep their heads above water. And not every team can say that. Look, the Timbers have gotten meaningful performances uh, out of Marco Farfan, out of Roy Miller, out of Lawrence Olam, uh, out of Zarek Valentin, uh, out, out of Dyrona Spria, out of Darren Maddox, out of Jeremy Obobese. None of those guys were players that they expected to be relying on considerably uh, at the beginning of the season. And they have had to rely on them all at times, uh, you know, each at times. Uh, and, and those guys have come through. You know, I mean, you even think about somebody like Obobese, if you want to point to any single game that sort of turned the Timber season around, it would be that 2-1 win that they got at Vancouver. That was the Jeremy Obobese game. Uh, that was the game in which he burst onto the scene. He had a goal and an assist uh, and really sort of powered the Timbers to that win. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's not to say that he has been sort of the, the depth MVP by any means, but you can find games like that. Uh, that, that, that each of those guys has come in and put in a big, big performance, uh, to help the Timbers get points. And so I agree. You couldn't say that last year. You couldn't say that the, that the Timbers depth came through, you know, the Ned grab of the world didn't, uh, didn't propel the Timbers in, in, into that playoff spot. Uh, and, and that's a big, big difference between 2016 and 2017. Nicholas, if the Timbers beat Vancouver, Liam Ridgewell stays on the field and Audi comes back. That's a lot of ifs. Uh, let's get way ahead of ourselves. Can the Timbers beat Toronto in the final? I think anything can happen in a one-off game. And we saw that in 2015, the Timbers played the best soccer at the end of the year and other teams that had better overall seasons. It didn't matter. The Timbers were the better team in the playoffs and they won MLS cup. 
And so, yes, I think the Timbers could beat Toronto. I think having those stipulations would be important to make that a more feasible outcome. But if I was going to go to Vegas and put a bet on it, I, I would put my money on Toronto. Same Z's. Uh, let's talk about the Thorns. <laughs> so uh, they are champions. As we noted earlier, they won uh, the NWSL championship by way of a 1-0 uh, win over the North Carolina Courage. Uh, let's talk before we you know, get into the yay, hey uh, part of this. Let's talk about our predictions. Uh, yours was very good. You called a 1-0 win, as happened, and a Tobin Heath call, as did not happen. Uh, I called a 3-1 win uh, with a Haley Rosso brace. Jamie Goldberg, you're on points duty today. What do you say? Well, I got the results exactly right, So, and, and we need, neither of us got the side bet. Um, I'm going to give myself... 35 points for being right on the money in a NWSL championship. Only because it's the championship game. Because yeah. because otherwise that is a very, very low yeah, degree of difficulty. Yeah, but it is a championship. But yeah, I, I'm giving, to you, giving it to you for that reason. <laughs> Only because it's the championship game. And for me? Um, yeah, you got it right. Um, I, I accurately predicted the champion, did I not? You did accurately predict the champion. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you 20 points. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Championship game. So points inflation all over the place. Uh, it, it played out very much in, in many ways, like a lot of championship games play out. It was really, really ugly. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about it on uh, on Twitter uh, and other places uh, oh, oh, since the game. Uh, it was it had little rhythm, especially in the first half. It opened up a little bit in the second half. It had little rhythm, uh, a heck of a lot of fouls, many of which were committed by the Thorns. Uh, some pretty heavy challenges uh, coming both ways, frankly. Uh, but the Thorns certainly uh, had their their fair share of those. And yeah, it was, in other words, a the kind of final that you see. You, it's not every time, but you see, you see it pretty frequently, especially in games that are sort of win uh, or, or go home. Uh, should anybody care about this? Is this sort of a demerit on the Thorns? Uh, that it was an ugly game, or is it, and you, you'll have an idea how I feel, by the way I phrase this, is it just the nature of, of a game when you've got a team, uh, two teams going in there saying, I don't care how you do it, just get the darn win and get, and get back here with the trophy? Yeah, I, I do think it's the nature of the game, but I at the same time, I think it is an unfortunate showing. If someone was tuning in just for the championship game to see what's this NWSL on Lifetime all about, they would have seen a pretty empty stadium and a really, really terrible brand of soccer to watch. Uh, it was not a particularly fun or exciting game to watch. It's ugly is absolutely the right word. I don't take anything away from the Thorns or Carolina. Um, I think the Thorns probably started uh, started it. I think the ref did a poor job of handling the, the tough fouls. And Carolina, like you said, put in a lot of very bad tackles as well as the game went along. Um, I don't blame either team for playing that way. It's get the job done and that's what they need to do. It's an unfortunate uh, thing that happens with this type of format and, and unfortunate, I, I think a little bit for a growing league that's trying to build some support uh, around a championship game that might interest play, uh, viewers to come back for, to watch more games next season. So here's, Here's the advice I would give anybody that's like, hey, I'm going to tune into this one game of this of whatever competition, whether it's the World Cup or MLS or NWSL. Uh, I'm going to tune into one game to see like what it's all about. Don't tune into the final. 
Do not tune into the final. Tune into any other game. Do not tune into the final. Uh, if you want to like see what like the drama of the World Cup is all about and see what everybody's up in arms about, don't tune into the final. Tune into like a, a quarterfinal or tune into a group stage game. Uh, do not turn, tune into a final. If you want to see what MLS is all about, you've got a whole season to choose from. You can choose. You you can even pick some playoff games, which do tend to be pretty fun. Don't tune into the final. Same thing with NWSL. It's just the way it goes. And so I actually wasn't that fired up about it. Uh, you know, I mean, yes, are there going to be sort of novices uh, that come in and, and, and are turned off? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, I mean, at some point we have to get over in American soccer being concerned about that. We're always concerned about that. And you know what? Life goes on. The game is continuing to grow. Uh, NWSL, in many respects, uh, is continuing to grow. And I'm not concerned about that particular game you know, to tur- turning people off. That's just what happens in finals. I, I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it is a rarity when you get a final and you, and you get to the end of the game and you say, man, that was a great one. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not fired up about that. I, I think for, from the team's perspective, go get the trophy. Who, who gives it, you know, who gives a rip uh, about the way the, the game plays out? Uh, you've had a, had a whole season of hard work, uh, of pretty great soccer for both teams, uh, of certainly lots of attractive play. Uh, it would be awfully disappointing if you came out of a championship game saying, well, we died in beauty. We played some really nice soccer and we lost the game because the other team was a, was a little bit more assertive and a little bit more aggressive in how they went, went about it. No, the final is about going in and getting the trophy, and that's exactly why these games turn out this way. So uh, I'm not concerned about it. You know, Merritt Paulson made some comments to our good friend Jonathan Tannenwald after the game. Uh, about whether NWSL needs to rethink uh, the neutral site final. I think it's a hard decision. I, I, I you know, as, as Merritt said uh, in that interview, I, you see rationale both ways. And certainly in a game like this, uh, you sort of regret it because, you know, North Carolina would have packed out their stadium uh, for that final. Portland would have packed out Providence Park uh, for that final. And, and that would have visually been uh, a little bit better, at least visual on the television. Uh, than the mostly empty uh, stadium in Orlando. But again, you know what? If, if, if you tuned into that game expecting there to be 20,000 people there, you didn't have your expectations correctly uh, correctly aligned. Because I don't think anybody thought there, there were going to be. And I don't think anybody reasonably expected that if you know sort of what the non-Portland NWSL looks like. And so... You know, it's something that NWSL should think about. It's something the NW, that NWSL should, should actively consider over, over the course of the years. But, you know, we've had this discussion before. Uh, and certainly, you know, the neutral site game in Portland a couple years ago absolutely, absolutely worked out great. And so how they do it, we'll see. I think there are good argu- arguments going both ways. I just came out of it thinking Thorns won. Fantastic. Uh, so they did win. That is fantastic. They're champions, campeones. Uh, and so I want to ask you this question, and I think it's a really hard question. I have no idea what my answer is going to be. 2016 Thorns versus the 2017 Thorns. Two questions. Who would you take in a head-to-head game, knowing that, yes, you're going to have clones? Uh, and second, which team do you consider to be more accomplished? It's it's a really tough uh, question. Um, I really liked the formation and philosophy behind this 2017 team and how it ended up coming together towards the end of the year. Like you said, throw that championship game out. And I, I was really excited about uh, just how everyone, 
just the well-rounded nature of this team and how everyone was clicking on the field. I think it's hard if you're going to go put these teams up against each other. I think it's really hard to say that you're going to pick the team that doesn't have Tobin Heath as a completely healthy MVP candidate in the lineup. That's that's exactly my thought too. So I am going to pick 2016 and that's really the, the main reason why, because Tobin Heath, you know, she played these final few games, but she is not a hundred percent yet. And I think a hundred percent Tobin Heath is someone you don't want to leave off your roster. And she just changes games in the season she had in 2016. I mean, she Donnelly was an, a finalist for NWSL MVP. She was a U.S. soccer female player of the year for 2016 as well. That's not a player you want to leave off your roster. So I, I would go with 2016 because of that. I, I would say that I think this year is a more accomplished team. And that's not necessarily a Shield versus uh, championship critique, but I, I, I think that this year's team came very close to Shield. And that's you're you're talking about a few points when it comes to difference, but they they ultimately got it done to to win the championship, and I think you felt that they were going to get it done to win the championship. I think by the end of this year, this team kind of put a stake down, uh, winning eleven of their final thirteen games, and showed that they really weren't a team that was going to be beat by any other anyone else in this league. So. I, I think ultimately I would say this is a, the more accomplished team, but if you were just, if it was just a head to head competition, I think I'd go with 2016. So here is my rationale, why my sort of devil's advocate argument, why I would take uh, the 2017 thorns in a, in a game against the 2016 thorns, because you're right. I mean, look, and, and, and ultimately if I had to put my money down somewhere, it would be on the team with fully fit and in form and top five player in the world, Tobin Heath on it. But I think when you look around the rest of the 2017 team, I think you can see some pretty significant upgrades in, in, in a number of spots. Look, a, a Michelle Betos was, was very good for the, was good for the thorns uh, for a number of years. She was nowhere near the form that AD French was in over the course of the season. AD French was an outstanding goalkeeper and is properly getting, you know, getting, getting now a, a best 11, uh, not, and, and also being considered, uh, for, for goalkeeper of the year, which I've never understood why they separate those two things. Uh, that's a, a totally different discussion for a totally different time. Uh, but yeah, it seems like if you're the best 11 goalkeeper, you should ipso facto be, uh, the goalkeeper of the year anyway. Uh, but I think that's a significant upgrade for the thorns in 80 French over Michelle Betos. I think the back line, uh, and, and just the way they came together at the end of the year when, when Reynolds w- was back, even though it's, you know, functionally many of the same players was better. Uh, in 2017 than, than, than it was in 2016. Emily Sonnet, I thought, had a better season. Uh, Emily Mangus was at least as good, if not better, uh, over the course of 2017 uh, as she was in 2016. I think Amandine Henri uh, was better in 2017 than in 2016. She, she was just a little bit more comfortable and was able to dictate uh, a little bit more from central midfield. And then, look, I, I think you, you got to mention Haley Rosso was a totally different player. And when you want to talk about replacing some of that production that they lost with uh, with Tobin Heath, they're very different players. But Rosso was a big-time player for the Thorns team, on both on the wing uh, and in sort of a two-front. And so, you know, I do think there's an argument to be made that I would take the 2017 Thorns uh, on the field uh, against the 2016 uh, team. So uh, a little bit of devil's advocate stuff there, but I do think you can go around the field and identify uh, players that, that, that stepped up and, and that could overcome uh, potentially 
that uh, that that absence of, of, of Tobin Heath. Um, yeah, uh, Amandine Henri and Nadia Nadim uh, both I thought put in excellent performances. Uh, Nadim in a substitute role, Henri in a very very hardworking, very very effective central midfield role uh, over the course uh, of the championship game. Both are saying goodbye to Portland. We know. How hard will it be to replace those two now that we sort of have the the advantage of being able to step back away from uh, from the season? Uh, is this something that, that the Thorns are really going to struggle with? And how much risk do you think it brings into this offseason? I think that they're both players that have been very good for the Thorns. I think the Thorns team has a lot of options, though, and I, I do think they have players that kind of can immediately take those spots in in the lineup without too much of a drop off if if um if uh, assuming everyone else is coming back which i i think is still a big if at this point obviously ali long was on the bench towards the end of this year and that was a real question given the form that she has been in the fact that she's broken in with the national team in, in recent years to leave a u.s women's national team player on the bench for Amandine Henri and for Lindsay Horan. Uh, I think Henri, like you said, was much more comfortable in the midfield. I think she did a lot for the Thorns, and I think she'll be harder to replace. But I do think a midfield of Horan uh, and Long can be very effective. Also, as you pointed out, Nadine was on the bench once Tobin Heath came, came back. So when you have Tobin Heath fully healthy going 90, I, I think that puts the thorns in a situation where they can manage the absence of Nadim. It involved obviously losing those two with, with those players coming in. That is now a question of depth. And I, I think that's something they will have to build on. But as I reported, when I, when, when I reported that both would be leaving, it sounds like the thorns do have replacements already lined up. Portland is a place that women's soccer players want to play because of the fan support, because of the ownership, because of, as Christine Sinclair said last night, the the way that they're treated as equals to the men. And so I, I think it's a very desirable place and that Thorns are going to be able to replace both Henri and Nadim with some very, very good players. And I think even with the group they have now, they have some options for both those roles where, so that it's not as, uh, not seamless, but not quite the issue it would otherwise be. Uh, it's just Portland has some advantages given uh, the fan support and ownership it has here. Uh, but that's not to say that Henri and Nadim weren't massively important for the Thorns while they were here. I think the Thorns are losing something by losing both those players. But I, I I'm still have confidence that this is not going to be anything like a rebuilding year next year. I think they're going to still be able to pick up where they left off. That's entirely fair. Uh, and, and that is, you know, I, I guess I haven't, you know, I, we've sort of talked about this a couple of times, but I, I haven't frankly sort of dived all the way into thinking about it because we've had, you know, more immediate fish to fry. Uh, but look, I mean, you know, when I think about this uh, initially, I sort of come at it from a, a pretty simple question. Would the Thorns, if they could, just plug and play this year's team next year? And I think the answer is unquestionably yes. Would you agree? Like, a, a you know, yeah. suspend yeah. the rules, suspend all that. If you gave Gavin Wilkinson and, and Mark Parsons the option, just bring this year's team, plug and play back for next year, would they say yes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think in a, in a heartbeat they would say yes. And so, uh, you know, I you know why take on that risk? Um, well, 
because they have to. But but I, I definitely do think it, it is risk that they're taking on. Uh, we got a few Thorns questions to hit before we get to predictions here. Uh, Peter wants to know, when you're drinking on the owner's dime, what are you drinking? The context behind this uh, is the Rose City Riveters, who, by the way, had a fantastically impressive uh, section in Orlando, considering there was one week's notice that the Thorns were going to be there. I know some had booked beforehand. One week's notice, hard place to get to all the way across the country, uh, and yet had a, a section easily of, of a couple hundred, if not more, uh, on the wall there in, in Orlando. That was really impressive. Portland was very well represented in, in that game. Uh, but as is traditional, uh, the ownership after the game, after the victory, uh, sort of picked up the bar tab for all, all of those traveling supporters. Uh, Merritt Paulson was nice enough, uh, because this is fun, to tweet the receipt, uh, or at least part of the receipt, uh, so we could see what everybody drank. But if, if you are drinking on sort of the owner's dime, what do you order, Jamie Goldberg? And you suspend your ethics. I don't want to hear anything about ethics right now. This is hypothetical. There are no ethics in fantasy land. Yeah, I wasn't going to get into ethics. Um, I, I'd probably try to go for a pricey cocktail if the if the bar if it was that type of bar. But after a game, I, I mean, that might not be what I'd want. So I, I would probably want a beer. Um, I, I wrote this on Twitter, and you just said you do it, but I I did, I did I, say you, and in, I'm going to say you again. <laughs> in this specific situation, after a game in October, um, I gave props to the person who ordered the pumpkin beer. I have a a pretty big obsession with pumpkin beer. I, it's like the one weird October, November pumpkin themed thing I get into. I don't get into the lattes or anything, but right now I have like six, seven, eight different pumpkin beers in my fridge. And I also am very aware that there's a pumpkin beer festival happening in Portland this weekend. So I'd probably be the weird one who uh, ordered uh, the pumpkin beer on the menu. Otherwise I'd just go for a good craft beer. So you'd go for uh, a pumpkin beer, which is you. Uh, so this is easy for me. Uh, I would, I, I would get like one or two really good bourbons, uh, or, or, you know, other whiskeys. I'm, I'm not going to be picky as, as to bourbon versus something else. Uh, it could be like a, a, a Westward from house spirits distillery. If by some divine intervention, there was somebody wherever we were that, that had Westward, uh, or, you know, I mean, it, it could be a nice little, you know, like a Colonel E.H. Taylor, a uh, small batch or something like that. A, a really good bourbon, uh, that I would normally not buy for myself something even better i i mean you know heck it's merit's money i i, I buy order a hundred dollar bourbon i probably wouldn't uh but nonetheless you know I, I would get like one or two of those really great ones uh good whiskey couple rocks to just to get a little bit of water in it to open it up uh and to cool it down a little bit but not much uh and and you know hey I, i'm not trying to bankrupt the guy or anything like that i want the timbers to still be able to bring in dps i want the thorns to still bring in uh <laughs> you, you know these good internationals so i don't want to bankrupt the club so after that, I, I would probably then just go to Pendleton and, and ride out the evening uh, w w with Pendleton for the rest of the time. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, do you like Edie, uh, Mark Parsons' adorable daughter? Also love the Fetty. This is, by the way, our, our friend Jonathan Tannenwald, who, if I'm remembering from earlier in the episode, right, is his second shout out uh, of the episode. Big episode for Jonathan. Uh, do you like Edie? Also love the Fetty. <laughs> the, the confetti that was from, from our interview yeah, but yeah it? but it, um, but it's not confetti it's just fetti it's just fetti yes yes i love the fetti who doesn't um, and who doesn't love I that fetti i don't know it, how you could that fetti specifically like ordinarily i'm kind of a fetti scrooge because have you tried to clean that stuff up <laughs> awful uh but like nonetheless in that circumstance absolutely uh, are, are you an everyday fetti person 
No, no, because I, I hate cleaning as well. But yeah, if it's if it's that kind of thing, if, if it's a championship, you have to have the Fetty. I, I feel like that is like a crucial part of a championship. It's just not it's not a, a championship without Fetty. You need the Fetty. You need the plastic on the lockers and you need to spray champagne all yep. over the place. So th- those things are, are absolutely vital. Uh, I did not see in the Thorns locker room that they brought ski goggles in, which is apparently very, very vital. Uh, if you're going to be spraying champagne, because that apparently stings quite a bit. Uh, I can only attest to the fact that it hurts a lot the next morning when you drink a lot of it. Uh, but from that, I would also infer that it would sting the eyes as well. Uh, Kevin wants to know, will Ali Long return to the starting lineup in 2018? Big question, I think, for the offseason. What do you yeah. think uh, about an early take on that here, Jamie? I think she will, assuming she's on the team. I think she will likely still be on the team. There was earlier in this year, the the whole thing about the owner from Lyon uh, going after her again and uh, second Thorns player that he's gone after. So that raised a little bit of controversy. I, I There's nothing I've heard that says she would be leaving, but I, but I am interested to see how she took this. Obviously she seemed to be a team player through all of it, but she's a competitive person. And I wonder if she doesn't feel like she's going to start or if she doesn't feel like that's, something she's consistently going to be able to do in this team if she does look at other options. I think given that Henri is leaving, it makes a lot of sense, as I said earlier, to kind of just put uh, Long back in there. But I don't know who else the Thorns are going after in this offseason. And so I am a little bit wary uh, about what's going to happen there. I think there's a lot of reasons for her to want to stay in the U.S., given that uh, the things will start He. Uh, given that the U.S. national team is going to start getting closer and closer to preparing for this next World Cup. Um, but I think she wants to be on a team where she's going to start, uh, particularly because the national team is going to be preparing for a World Cup and she wants to be getting weekly minutes. And so I think she'll probably want to look at that and see what's going on. I, I don't know her exact contract situation, so that plays it into, into it as well. But I think that's a very interesting question. Whether Long will be back, whether she'll start, um, whether she'll just be plugged in for Henri or who else is coming into this team that, that might impact that. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, a big conversation between Allie and probably Mark Parsons and Gavin Wilkinson. Uh, because, look, I mean, and you wouldn't blame Allie at all in, in, in saying exactly what you said. I need to start because I need to be out there playing every week and getting minutes so that I can, I, I can sort of showcase myself uh, for the 2019 World Cup. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that is a, a big, big thing for her. Uh, and frankly, if she is not, uh, if they do not sort of plan to have her as an everyday automatic kind of starter, I would expect her to be traded this offseason. Uh, I, if I were a betting man, I would say they will find a place in the starting lineup for her on a consistent basis, and they therefore will not trade her because I think her value is probably greater here than it is, uh, than it is on the trade market. But we'll see. Well, that, I think this is a huge, huge question, one that I'm, I don't feel fully prepared to answer uh, at this point, and will be one that we're going to talk about a lot, uh, I would imagine, over the course of the winter. I think this next one's a little bit easier, uh, but Karen asks it anyway. Do you expect Haley Rosso to return for 2018? Karen puts her uh, two cents down in, in saying, please say yes, please say yes. Jamie Goldberg, are you going to make Karen happy? Yeah, I expect Rosso to return. There, there was announcements that she's going to Australia, but again, that doesn't mean she's leaving the Thorns. I know there was a, a little bit of concern about that. Uh, Australia's season is perfectly aligned with the NWSL to be in the offseason. Rosso has been going 
back to Australia in the offseason. And I expect that's going to be a similar thing this year. I don't see any reason given the year that she's had here, the growth that she's had, the how it's helped her get on the Australian national team radar more and more why she'd want to leave the thorns and her relationship with Mark Parsons is very good. He is the coach that brought her to Washington and then uh, brought her to the thorns when Washington decided to make the really terrible decision to waive her uh, last year. So I expect her also to be back. I'd be in fact shocked if she's not. Yeah, I would be shocked as well. I mean, you, you look at where the interests line up as you, as you talked about and they line up on all sides toward, toward coming back. Uh, certainly Rosso is a player that, that sort of like Ali Long wants to showcase herself to get, uh, see if she can get into the Australian starting lineup for that 2019 World Cup. And she would be insane <laughs> not to come back to Portland because she's had a lot of success and a lot of growth here. Uh, certainly the Thorns absolutely want her back because she was extremely good uh, and an extremely important player for her over the course of the year. Uh, you, you don't simply let good young players like that go unless there is uh, sort of a compelling reason to, and and there seems to be not even a bad reason to let her go, much less a compelling one. And so I would be shocked if she's not back in, in 2018, uh, which I think is good news for all of us. Uh, predictions, that's what we're down to. Timbers versus Whitecaps. No more Thorns predictions for a while because, well, after you win it all, you just won it all. And and that's the end of it for, for a little bit. Uh, so, so, predict, so predictions, 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 I predict that the Thorns will be champions this time in the report again. Uh, <laughs> you can put me down for points on that. Uh, so all we have is Timbers Whitecaps. Jamie Goldberg, you're up first. I do think the Timbers, given that they're at home, given their success against the Whitecaps this season, are going to get the win, and, and they're going to win the Western Conference. I think it's going to be a close, hard-fought game, but the Timbers are going to come away with a 2-1 win. And because the, the other, other winger is scoring, uh, I'm going to decide that Darlington Nagby is going to score a goal in this match. Darlington Nagby is going to score a goal in, in that match. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, not a guy that's been scoring a ton recently, but you never know. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be 3-1, and I'm going to go way, way out on a limb with my side bet. If I get this right, it's going to be some high but randomly determined number of points. I think Fernando Adi is going to seal the deal late. They're going to score the, the Timbers' third goal, uh, sort of put it away, and after that goal... Diego Chara is going to, as he does frequently, clap politely. <laughs> uh, so a 3-1 Timbers win. Fernando Adi seals the deal. Uh, Diego Chara claps politely. That is my my bet and my side bet. Um, and yeah, that is all of the, the, the sort of substance that we have uh, for the week. Wow, what a week. This has been a long podcast, but like I make no apologies for that because... What a week. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, what, what a week. Um, Jamie Goldberg, you have... Uh, bed to get off to. We have to get the fantasy update uh, in here. So uh, as far as the, the, the fantasy update goes, the soccer made in Portland Fantasy League. I'm stalling while I pull it up here. Um, it's taking its time. So I'm going to blame somebody else, namely the internet. Uh, but nonetheless, the soccer made in Portland Fantasy League uh, in the third place spot. I fell down to 49th place, by the way. Uh, I've been sort of hanging around the 50 spot. Uh, but in the third spot, we have Robert. That is Black Sheep FFC. With 3,284 points. Second place, our familiar Timbertown. That is Lie with 3,315. Uh, and Big Hearts Brass Balls, Aaron has a 60 point lead uh, heading into the final week. Uh, this is a coronation. This is the ride into Paris uh, on the Tour de France for, for Aaron. He will win the Soccer Made in Portland Fantasy League, uh, at least in the regular season this year. Uh, and that is going to be how it goes. Uh, we are Soccer Made in Portland. 
That's Jamie Goldberg. I'm Chris Reifer. You can find us every week on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. Uh, if you want to subscribe, you can do that on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your questions this week and also, of course, for tuning in. Uh, yeah, enjoy the uh, the Timbers taking on the Whitecaps for all the Western Conference marbles. Uh, enjoy, you know, the Thorns being champions. We can enjoy that for quite some time now. Uh, we'll be talk, uh, back here again next week to talk about all of that uh, once again. And until then, as always, take care.